0: Dyer here. Welcome to episode six of Loving an Addict. This podcast is inspired by a great loss, our daughter Emma, who passed away from an accidental overdose. Our desire is to spread awareness, love, and hope to also help those who are striving to love the addict in their lives because we know that that person is so much more than an addict. Hi, guys. So, this is me being really real. This is pretty much what I look like every day. If I'm not in workout clothes, I'm in pajamas. (laughs) It's my life these days. So I figured this would be a great one to just be real, be myself. This is a very special and interesting podcast episode because we have a very special guest, our Emma Grace, who inspired this podcast. I was going through her Facebook the other day. And remembered that she had recorded some YouTubes about her experience as an addict and her story, the 20 minute version of the sequence of events that happened in her life. But I was really struck by her saying, I hope this can help you. I hope it can help you in some way. And if it can't help you, at least you can feel some empathy from me. And that just, it just really struck me because. This is a girl. This was about 2 months before she passed away. And she was in a pretty good place then. Good things were happening in her life. And she was positive. But of all of her addictions that she struggled with for 7-8 years, it it was a daily struggle. It it wasn't something that she couldn't ever not think about so it was just a struggle and this was hard for me to listen to there's things in there that are difficult for example she talks about condensed air can which is what we believe eventually took her life because it collapsed her lung and she aspirated and so we don't know how long she was without oxygen. Anyway, long enough to create enough damage to be where we are today. But anyway, I, it just struck me that I needed to share it on this platform because it's exactly why Def and I are doing this podcast. We don't want people to feel alone. There were plenty of times in the last seven, eight years, where we definitely felt like we were on an island, that we didn't know where to turn, we didn't know who we could ask advice from, and felt like we were the only ones who had experienced this in our lives of people that we knew. So it was just a lot. It was just really, really heavy. And there's times when we still feel that now in the stage that we're in now, but I, I think we have maturity on our side. We have a good relationship on our side and good perspective. So anyway, I just felt like this was a really good thing to share so you guys could hear her own words, and her own experience, and see her cute face. (laughs) There are some things that I wanted to mention. So she said that it was traumatic and hard when we had first found out about the sex and drugs. And we had mentioned this in other podcasts, but just wanted to reiterate that was because we used language like how could you what's wrong with you why are you doing this to us things that were shaming statements that we didn't really know about shaming statements we that's all we knew how to react for stuff like this so just to avoid shaming statements to kids it's something i look back on and wish that so bad that i would have said what do you think this is from can you tell me what you're feeling can you tell me where the anger's coming from, so that we could root that out instead of it years and years later coming out in treatment, and then just really being something she battled with her whole life. And that began with pornography. She'll talk to you about that a little bit. And the other thing is to talk to your kids about pornography in a normal way. She's like, you know, we didn't talk about pornography in our house. And we didn't. We didn't specifically say, say, hey, when this happens, not if this happens. When parents think that they can completely take every opportunity for your child to view porn is not a realistic thinking. Either another kid is going to send them a naked picture or they happen to see it on the bus or they happen to click on it, which is what happened to Emma when she was online. There's so many ways that it's just out there all the time that we need to talk about it. And we need to say, hey, when you see an image that doesn't make you feel good, maybe it makes your stomach flip-flop, or it's confusing, or you don't understand it, or, or you're curious. There might be all of these different things that you're going to be feeling. Can you come talk to me about it? I would love Free to tell me what you saw so that I can help you understand and explain. And Because so much of it is so scary to young kids or even teenagers. It just needs to be a, a normal topic without the shame aspect. Without saying, how dare you? And I told you not to get on the computer at this time. And you weren't supposed to be on your phone, you know. Having it be an open discussion so that the kid knows how to come to you when they're in trouble. I think we had mentioned in another podcast, it's the same thing with being around people that don't make you feel comfortable. We need to listen to that. You know, when your child says, I don't want to hug uncle so-and-so, we don't say, you hug him. You know, we say, oh, that's okay. And you say to the uncle, she doesn't feel like giving a hug today, so we're going to respect that. I think so often we dismiss kids' bells that go off in their heads and the that gut feeling that they have, we need to honor that. And and anywhere else they go, make sure, I don't want to share names, but someone that I know, his mother, talked often about if anybody touches you, if anybody makes you feel uncomfortable, you come to me right away. You say no, and you come to me right away. And it wasn't a one-time talk. And comparing her story with most other people's story it's like a one-time hey don't ever let anybody do that and it's over kind of like the sex talk but this needs to be over and over and over and over not in a scary way not in a harmful way but be like hey just so you know remember you know if you're ever in a situation where you don't feel comfortable you say no and you come talk to me right away that needs to be reiterated more and more and hopefully open up the lines of communication. Because there, you know, there's things that happened to me as a kid and that were kind of strange when I was really young. And I'm like, why didn't I go to my mom and tell her that? I think it comes down to what is normal way to discuss stuff in your family. And when you open up those lines of communication for things that are hard, hard topics, and you make it in part of conversation at the dinner table and you go with the flow and it feels normal. And then the kid knows, oh, even when it's weird stuff that I don't understand, even when it's things that it seems like I might get in trouble for, I, I'm going to go ahead and talk to my parents because they open the door for that to be a topic of conversation, pornography, sex, drugs, inappropriate things happening, all of those things need to be a normal thing that's discussed at the dinner table. So be okay to get in the hard stuff. And it's okay for you to be uncomfortable. Your kids need to know that this is an okay thing to talk about. So, anyway, off my soapbox, now I'm gonna turn you over to our Emma Grace.
1: Hi, friends. Today is actually the same day as my previous video, as you can see, but I'm getting behind on videos. So I wanted to tell my story today. I just wanted to highlight some experiences that really changed me as a person for better or for worse. And I also, my only goal of this channel is to help others who have experienced the same and don't know how to get through it, or at least just want to feel less alone. Like if I don't have a solution for you in these videos, like I'm not able to give you what you need, at least you know that someone else you know has been through it, or have heard your experience in mine, if that makes sense. Anyways, so I was born and raised in Washington State, like Seattle, area i had a wonderful childhood i'm so blessed to say that i have nothing bad to say about my childhood i have three younger sisters i love being the oldest and watching them grow up and even though it's hard to watch them grow up like i feel like the proud older sister every time i see them do something monumental or i just see a picture of them looking so grown up or i see them in person after a while i love my sisters we've been through a lot together because of my struggles but i feel like we're in a good place now which is nice so i started struggling with self-esteem so badly when i was 11 years old i know exactly where it stemmed from and this is something i'm still embarrassed to talk about something that isn't talked about even for men which is more stereotypical kind of like how eating disorders are more stereotypical for women than men so men are embarrassed to talk about it whatever So when I was 11 I was on the family computer And I came across across one of those Like click now ads I don't know how I It must have just been like a virus thing When those were like huge And I don't really see viruses anymore But like I clicked on it And I was like what's this And it was like a censored Pornographic picture But there was another button to Like expose it And I was like what is this? You know, I was 11. I was a baby. I was a child. And that was traumatizing for me as a child. I remember I wrote down everything that happened, everything, what I saw and how gross I felt because I knew it wasn't like something I was supposed to see, but it wasn't talked about in my home or anything. So I didn't really understand. And then I ripped up the paper and I threw it away. Cause I was like, I don't want anyone to know about this. So that kind of opened up a, I wanna say like my first experience with an addictive behavior. And it wasn't like every single day, all the time, whatever, but it like unlocked this part of my brain where I felt so shameful that I was doing it, watching it, you know, like further almost diving into this world that was not for a child. And it was, looking back, it was like, that's traumatizing for a child. That's not, (laughs) they shouldn't see that. But it's so much more common than anyone wants to admit to. Anyways, that was too long. But basically, that's where my self-esteem issue started. And I didn't know that that was the correlation, but I was a really mean teenager. I was, I was an awful teenager. I was so mean to my parents, my sisters. I was a bully at school. I was terrible because I hated myself. And I didn't know that those two things correlated. So then I started smoking weed when I was like 16 and I was like, this is amazing. And I used it as a coping skill. I used it as like, okay, I feel sad. I feel depressed, I'm gonna smoke weed. And again, it wasn't all the time, but I started failing my classes. I was like an A, B student and I had failed every single class except for choir because there wasn't any homework but I had all Fs the second semester of junior year. And I know it was because of that. I was more depressed, you know? And I've had people say, weed can't be addictive. Like, I can't believe all that stuff happened to you because of weed, like whatever. And it did. I've come to terms with like, I can't even handle weed, you know? So I started struggling even more. My parents noticed, but they didn't really know like what was going on. And I was having sex with my boyfriend. I grew up in a Mormon house, I forgot to say that. And so it was like really serious that I was doing these things, but I think mostly because I lied and I was the guinea pig, I was the oldest. I don't think they knew how to uh, respond to that and that's okay, you know, but that was traumatizing as well, their reactions and, you know, everything that happened after that. So when I wasn't getting better emotionally and I started self-harming and whatever, still sneaking behind their backs, they sent me to treatment because I was suffering emotionally, I really was. So I went to treatment inpatient for a year at a teen place, like a troubled teen center in Utah, South Jordan, Utah. I found a lot of relief, comfort, and healing there. Luckily, I didn't experience the abuse that other kids do at troubled teen centers. It like hurts my heart to hear those stories, but I didn't get that experience. So I met some of my best friends there. I got out. I was 18 years old. I didn't know how to make friends because my friends were made for me for my entire senior year. And I had coping skills, but didn't really know how to use them in real life because I was in a bubble for a year. So I went to college in Utah, Utah Valley University, and I was super depressed. Like I realized once I didn't have someone to talk to 24-7, like a therapist, you know, or someone who loved and cared about me, like I could talk to my parents, but I felt so alone. Once I realized like, oh no, I have to do this by myself. I struggled, I gained a ton of weight. I was really big and I was super unhappy. Things started getting better once I realized I needed to make healthier choices physically. I started feeling a lot better. And then I started struggling with my first... uh, Like, introduction, I guess, to eating disorders. I was like, I'm not losing enough weight. And so because of that shame I felt, I would binge eat. And I was like, why can't I stop doing this? Like, I... I would get so full to the point where I felt like I was gonna throw up and then eat more. And I hated it. I would eat foods I didn't even like. I would just like eat whatever was around me. Like it didn't matter. I just was stuffing my face, you know? And I couldn't understand why I couldn't stop. So then I was like, all right, how do I get rid of this? And I figured out a way to get rid of it if you know what I mean, bulimia. And so I, I got stuck in this binge food get rid of it and starve right after that because I felt so bad I I got stuck in that cycle for like a couple months and I was so miserable and because of that misery and shame from struggling with eating again I started like I think I think the first thing that happened is I drank at like a Halloween party and it wasn't fun. And then I drank on New Year's Eve and I drove my cousin and I home drunk. And it's things like that where I look back and I'm like, normal people don't do that. Like sometimes normal people will do that and then they're like, okay, I'm gonna stop. But I didn't stop, you know? So I quit my job. I had two jobs at that time. I quit my job at the treatment center and started working at the place I went to. Cause I was like, I'm so miserable. Like I just need to, you know, If I can't help these kids, if I'm not helping myself. So I quit and then that same night I smoked weed and I was like, this is what I've been missing. And then things went really downhill from there. I was sexually assaulted on January 11th, 2018. And that ruined me for a while. And I just was so high all day, every day and started experimenting with hard drugs so, I went to my first adult rehab when I was 19. Yeah, 19. And it was called Annie's House in Draper, Utah. I loved it. It was only women's at that point, and it was a great experience for me. I feel like the reason why I went was to heal from the sexual assault, and it, it really helped. And then I moved home to California. Five months later, I relapsed because I wasn't doing anything for my recovery. Like I was just like, all right, I don't wanna use, but you know, if the opportunity arises, I will. And I also was off my meds because I didn't schedule an appointment soon enough. And I felt like a shell of a human. I felt like a zombie. And so I got high because I didn't wanna feel that. Then I ran away in the middle of the day from my parents house to Utah with like a a pullover sweatshirt, my blanket, my blankie that I still sleep with, and a charger and like the clothes that I had on. Because my mom noticed something was different with me once I started smoking weed and then I did like coke or something. And she was like, "You okay?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm just adjusting to being back on my meds." And then once I realized she knew what was up, I didn't want to I didn't want them to see me like that. And I wanted to do whatever I wanted and not have like the disappointment from my parents that they had already had throughout my life. So I the Middle of the day just drove to Utah the nine hours nine ten hours. I went to my friend's house who I went to rehab with and that is uh, when I had my first experiences with prostitution for money and drugs. There was only a couple times, but traumatic you know like sucked and I had no money in the bank when I left I had two jobs I just texted them and said I had a family emergency and never went back so for two months I was using cocaine a lot mostly smoking weed all day every day didn't have a job was sleeping on the floor with my boyfriend in a one-bedroom apartment of a friend of ours I was miserable, and that's when I tried meth for the first time, and it didn't really, like, go anywhere because my boyfriend was like, I don't want you doing that. And I was like, okay, hey, well, I don't want you to do Xanax. You're sleeping all day every day, and you're really mean. And he was like, okay. So we just agreed to stop, but I loved meth. I loved it. It wasn't anything like I imagined it to be. And that wasn't my last experience with meth, but that was my introduction. <clears throat> so my boyfriend and I moved to California. He was the biggest piece of i was pretty miserable then like i was very blind to the fact that he was manipulating me and lying to me all the time we eventually broke up and then i had an amazing summer that year like i moved back in with my parents and it was awesome and then i was clean for like a year and seven months not doing anything for my recovery just like yeah i don't want to live like the way that i did in utah sleeping on the floor you know like that sucked that was a gross life but since I wasn't doing anything for my recovery I was looking back on pictures of me on drugs in Utah and I was like that looks fun I had started struggling with starvation again and self-harming so it was like the constants of what was happening in my life like what always came up is right before I relapsed was like another addiction or obsession would start happening again. So I used weed and Coke. I don't even think the Coke was real for my like first relapse experience. And then I was like, the guy I got it from on a dating app, he was like, yeah, I can, I asked if he could get me anything more and he said, I can get you crystal. And I was like, cool. But what I was given was not meth. And I've had someone suggest that it was like research chemicals, which is literally just like, no one knows what's in it. I had no idea. I was so sick. I was throwing up, which isn't normal. And I was hallucinating like crazy, which also wasn't normal because when you use meth, like once, you know, you're just vibing, you're chilling. It's when you stay up for like seven days when you start hallucinating. But I would hallucinate almost immediately. And I was like, mm, this isn't meth. But I bought it like four times and spent like $500 on weed and meth in like a week. I lost seven pounds in five days from just the water weight. And then I passed out one morning and my sister told my mom, that I passed out. And she was like, are you using? And I was like, no. So I was like, okay, I'll stop. Like they found out, I'll stop. And then I started smoking weed again, thought I could get away with it, but I was just like, so out of it. And my dad was like, you have to leave. Like I can't have your sisters witness this. And I was like, fair. So I left. And that's when I had my first introduction with heroin. And I think that's my favorite, but I did end up getting arrested for public intoxication and possession of heroin. And again, I was sleeping on the floor miserable life, throwing up every single day. It made me sick without fail every single time. And I wasn't throwing up anything. I wasn't eating, so it was just like stomach acid and maybe water, you know? Anyways, so then I went to rehab again to the same place, but now it was co-ed. And I had a great experience there. I spent 60 days there since this relapse was like a little more intense. And then I went to sober living there. That was my first experience with sober living. And it was great. And then I had to move out because the director of the program was like, we're actually selling this house you guys live in to another treatment center. So you need to either go to a different sober living that we have or find somewhere else to live. So my roommate and I who lived there, we were already planning on moving in together because we were super good friends. So we moved in together, everything was great until I started really struggling with self-harm again. Like to the point where I have keloid scars, if you know what those are, where they're very raised, very noticeable, very bumpy, and I have some all over my leg. And it was because I went through this terrible breakup, and it was another obsession. I was I was cutting myself in the drive-through while I was driving in the bathroom at work. I had a razor with me in my wallet, bathroom, bedroom car just in case and I was like I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop because I'm an addict like I knew that I knew that about myself at this point, but Every single time I'd be like get it together, dude so of course I ended up using and My roommate was pretty codependent with me. And so since she was an alcoholic, we just started drinking together I was mixing anxiety pills with alcohol Smoking a ton of weed again, but that would always lead me to something else. I was using a air duster, which is literally just air in a can, chemicals in a can, and it gets you high for like 30 seconds, but if you just keep doing it, and it's interesting how desperate I was to get high. So just kind of like a mix of all of that, cocaine like once and then towards the end, meth and heroin so heavily that I was like, so freaking miserable, so sick, so miserable. So I went to rehab again in St. George, Utah, which is Southern Utah and did 30 days there and then went to sober living. But almost immediately after I got to sober living, I wasn't serious about my recovery. So I was smoking weed and then I just ran away to Salt Lake, which is four hours from St. George, like in the middle of the day, again, with a friend of mine from rehab named Corey. So we were using meth, I think heroin, yeah. And then we slept on a bare mattress in my old apartment that my friend and I had moved out of, or she had moved out because our lease was up, with a sleeping bag as a blanket. And, yeah, that was my life for a few days. And then when we went back to St. George, they kicked me out of sober living because I didn't come home. So I had to get all my stuff, and all my stuff was in my car. Like, we couldn't even put the seats back because it was packed in the backseat and in the trunk. So because we couldn't sleep in the car, like, we weren't really tired anyways from the meth, but we slept at the park one night, and... That was rough. And so I contacted the director of the St. George program and I was like, I need help. I hadn't eaten, I was so dirty and gross. I hadn't brushed my teeth in like five days. And honestly, the first like desire of mine was literally a bed, laundry, shower, and food. And that's why I went back to rehab. Like that was like, okay, let's go wash our clothes and take a shower, like I hate this. But something clicked that time for some reason. So I went back for two weeks, and when I got out, I started going to Narcotics Anonymous. And then, you know, the first year of recovery through Narcotics Anonymous was rough. But I got through it with NA and with a sponsor. My best friend used fentanyl in front of me. My boyfriend relapsed and lied to me about it and was like wreaking havoc on our lives and I went through a breakup and my friend overdosed and died and I was struggling with self-harming again so all these traumatic ass things that would have taken me back out in the past back out means back out to using um, so when people say she went back out that means they're out using again it's like some terminology in recovery meetings so somehow I made it through and it was because I knew that I would have to call my sponsor the next day and say hey I relapsed or I don't know NA kind of changed me for the better so because my boyfriend relapsed he got us evicted from our apartment or the room we were renting so I had to move home because I had nowhere to go And so I moved back to California, that is where I am now. And I was off my meds because the ones I was on were not working, so I was like, I'm done. And I was so depressed for I wanna say two and a half months, two, three months when I moved home, that I was in bed all day. I would go to sleep at 4 a.m. and wake up at 4 p.m., come out of my cave for dinner, and then go back. I refused going on walks with my mom and my dog Bear I refused time with my family members and, you know, I eventually got on meds because I was like, I can't do this. It was so awful. It was the most depressed that I've ever been in my life, like combined with everything i had been through. So I got on meds. Things were better. I got a job at the job I'm still at and I love it. It's a daycare. That is my calling. I want to be a mom so bad. I want to help other people so bad. And I'm obsessed with them. I'm obsessed with those kids. I would do anything for them. And then I went back to school. I forgot to mention I went back to school when I moved back one of the times I moved back and I took two classes, but then I relapsed three classes. So each time that I intended to go back to school, when I dropped out those two times, I would relapse and I wasn't able to go back. So now I'm in school and I'm taking five classes. I don't know how I'm gonna do it cause I'm not, at, it's hard. Like it's, it's not, not that it's not going well but I just have to like force myself to do homework. I hate it. And I'm still working part-time at the daycare. Um, things are great. They really are. I found the right meds that work for me but I still really struggle with my depression. Like it's, it's mostly at night times and then sometimes it's hard to get up in the mornings and I just like won't go to class or whatever. So that's the one thing we're working on. But I'm so blessed and so grateful to be able to go to treatment, meet the people that I've met, and have so many chances with my family. So if you can't relate to the addiction piece, if you can't relate to relapse, if you can't relate to any of this, but you know what it's like to feel so miserable that you don't want to be here anymore, or that you literally go through the motions every single day, I get it I get it I've been so depressed where I can't brush my teeth can't clean my room don't give a shit about anything and call out of work and say I'm sick when I'm not like I've done I've done it all because of depression but I hope you heard something that you can either resonate with or helps you to have more empathy for people in your life What I would say, my biggest piece of advice, is talk to someone that can help you. And if they don't validate you, talk to someone else. Keep fighting for your life and what you want. Because if you don't find your purpose, which I didn't find mine for so long until like just now, like you're not living, you're surviving. And I know it's hard, I know, but how long do you wanna feel like this? How much longer do you want to be miserable? It's up to you. Anyways, stay sexy. Sorry this video was so long.
0: How cute was she? (laughs) Some really good nuggets in there. Some really good takeaways. But I just wanted to end, as we always do, that there is always, always help. And there is always, always hope and also taking out on a recording of her playing the piano and singing with the message we think that she would want all of you guys to hear.